future is now. And welcome to the SVK Crypto Podcast. 15 minutes of crypto value. My name is Charles Story. I'll be your host for the next 15 minutes, coming live from the city of London, Shoreditch. So let's get down to business. Today's show is a very special show. It's going to be coming live from our monthly meetup event here in the city of London. The meetup was titled The Future of Blockchain. It was a phenomenal event with a phenomenal turnout. I think we had in excess of around 300 people down at the event. So it was great to see everyone there. It was great to... Um, have a phenomenal selection of speakers, which is something that we're going to delve into in today's podcast. So I managed to record one of the panels. The panel's titled The Future of Decentralized Gaming. On that panel, we had John Knight, who is the Vice President of Partnerships at BlockFee, Robbie Young, who's the CEO of Animoca Brands, Paul Collins, the CEO of Sticksports, James McQuillan, journalist for Blockchain Gamer, and Oliver Mayer, our blockchain analyst here at SVK Crypto, who is going to be the moderator of the panel. So it's a phenomenal panel. We're going to jump straight into it. I hope you enjoy. Next panel and last panel is going to be decentralized gaming. Gaming, streaming, uh, non-fungible tokens, avatars is something that at SVK Crypto we're very passionate about. When we look at mass adoption and we look at the different industry sectors and verticals where that's going to come from, we believe that the gaming space will be one of the first verticals to adopt blockchain technology on a mass market scale, something that we're very, very passionate about. And when we speak to all the gamers and all the developers, they really understand in-game economies, they understand NFTs, they understand mining, advertising, digital gold. Well, today's blockchain panel has the forefront of the UK and international gaming brands around. So without further ado, let's get a big round of applause and let me hand over to Oliver Mayer, who's going to be moderating. Let's go. Yes, as Shane says, you know, this is, I'm really, really excited to win this panel because gaming is personally an area where I think mass adoption can take place very quickly for blockchain technologies. And I think the kind of demographic that gamers are will adopt this technology seamlessly, but I'm going to get into this. I'm going to try to take you through a journey of like how I might look at the sector kind of from, you know, the two sides. It's always usually two sides to the market. See the, the benefits for both sides and then the use cases, and then the kind of, are we ready for this adoption yet, and then where we're going. So, um, I want to put the panel first to introduce uh, themselves. Robin, do you want to kick it off? Hi, I'm Robin Young. Uh, I'm the CEO of Animoca Brands. Uh, we're a mobile game company, and we've been, um, we like to think of ourselves, I guess, as a little bit of a leader in the blockchain gaming sector. We're based in Hong Kong, but have studios around the world. Um, and are very active in uh, particularly creating content from uh, licensed brands. Hi, my name is John Knight. I'm head of partnerships for Block B. Um, we have a fantastic technology. Um, we've got a platform that enables you to abstract underlying blockchain to create this incredible human engagement experience on top of it using augmented reality, Pokemon Go style map pickups, and so on and so forth. So, pretty cool tech, and we've actually got a bit of a demo going on if you find the flyers around. I'm uh, James from Blockchain Gamer. So I work as the editor for the site, and usually it just involves chasing around a bunch of the major names from the blockchain gaming space, and sometimes irritating them with our requests for questions and answers and that kind of thing. So we're involved in a lot of events as well. Some of them are coming out of London, otherwise international, but our focus is mostly on 
hunted down the latest games and developments. Hello, my name is Paul Collins. I'm uh, CEO of Six Sports. Um, I'm uh, not huge on blockchain. We started a project last year, but our, our company is a games company that started back in 2004 on uh, online, and then uh, more recently in mobile, um, uh, reaching you know users all around the world. And we um, went down this path last year, so we had quite a lot of experience having uh, uh, tried out what blockchain would do for gaming. Okay, thank you guys. So the first question I'll ask the panel is, for, the, for those who don't know, what are the benefits from a publisher's perspective, a brand, company, or publisher's perspective of incorporating blockchain into their games? Um, who would want to start with? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's the reason we went uh, down this path. We, try, we tried it out last year. Um, we saw that, I mean, when you're producing games, you, you have a singular relationship with each individual player that you have all your users. And you're producing content, um, and they consume that content. And there's a business model around, you know, and there's different types of business models about how you sell that content and that engagement, essentially. Um, and we saw blockchain as um, um, a shift in the way that you do that. Um, quite simply, because the idea of you know, digital assets is not new within games. I mean, we've been selling um, tennis rackets in one of our games um, for you know, about seven, eight years now. Um, but we don't actually sell them, and the consumer is not actually buying a tennis racket, even in digital form. He's buying a license to play with that, that, that racket. And that license is conferred to him by us, and only by us, and we can put it away at any point um, by um, either just playing the game or whatever. So he doesn't really own it, and yet they still spend, uh, one of our rackets sells at $30 a piece. So they're fine, they're just to change a bit of their game experience. Um, so the idea of a digital asset that you can own um, seemed a logical step forward, um, because you know, if they're spending $30 on an asset that they, they're essentially renting from us, um, how much would they spend? Um, they could actually resell it later um, and get involved in that. And the other thing for us is about changing um, the value exchange um, between us and the consumer. Um, at the moment, as I said, it's very much from us to them, and they just consume and we just sell. Um, and that's a bit um, simplistic. Um, there are better ways of doing it. There are more people involved in uh, the relationship um, between us. So we have influencers that work with us and don't necessarily get paid. Some of our users are advocates of our services and how do they get um, a stake in our, uh, our community that we that they are part of um, and that's uh, that's obviously a big win that can be delivered through sort of tokenization um, where there's a value exchange um, so that's in a nutshell as we see it yes, um, so I think I'm going to expand upon some false points one of them being that there's a renewed and changed relationship between publisher and player. So I think some of the best examples that I've seen in the past have been, for example, oh, okay. Um, one of them is the Reality Clash team. There's another one that is, if I can remember it to the top of my head. Oh yes, um, the Lucid Sight team. So with Crypto Conjure, it changes the sort of relationship between players and the publishers. They immediately become a stakeholder in the kind of title that you're making. So they had a non-fungible token for example, some time ago called Council of Nine, 
And that premise on its own doesn't sound that amazing. But when you think about just what it allows that single player to do, it sounds utterly insane from a centralized standpoint. It allows them to make decisions within the game. It allows them to vote on particular developments or updates or balancing to in-game assets. And that allows the player to really let their voice be heard in the gaming community. And I think that's something that is really advantageous for a publisher. You get to directly know who your player is and build the game specifically for them. And I think that in itself is another segment of it too, which is that it, it makes it, it changes the kind of way and the kind of people that a developer and a publisher are beholden to. In a more conventional sense, they are beholden to stockholders or investors, meaning they have to make key changes in order to ensure profitability. But when it comes to a publisher on a decentralized or blockchain-style format, it allows you to be accountable to your players. So you make something that's a lot more purpose-built for them. And I think that's something that's truly revolutionary about blockchain, that you can't get from any other kinds of systems, although, as a journalist, I'm inclined to be really up for being proven wrong. I think, to go back to what Paul was saying, um, games have historically been a sandbox. And if you earned or purchased objects within a game, they only existed within that game sandbox. If that game ceased to exist, those objects ceased to exist. Any money that you spent on those objects disappeared. Um, I mean, to give you a, a, a pretty good example, my, uh, my nine-year-old son spends probably a lot more money than he should do with skins in Fortnite. I'm sure he's I'm probably not the only father who spends too much money on that. Um, but if Fortnite shut down as a game, that money is wasted. I have no rights to those skins outside of the game. So, being able to break the walls of that sandbox and being able to take an object and have that skin that I own, obviously that gives me the ability to trade it and the ability to own it, even if the game doesn't exist anymore. But there's also other opportunities to start to use objects between games. So potentially, if I, you know, I could use my Fortnite skin in a non-Fortnite related game, it could be that I've now got myself driving around in a car and not in it, or it could be that I'm doing a, a I don't know, first-person shooter later. <laughs> um, so those, those are further options. From a game publisher's perspective, I guess, you know, the two big challenges, especially for independents, that, that, that I've heard about are, number one is how do you attract people into your game, because it's an incredibly crowded marketplace with the number of apps on the app store. Uh, and number two is how do you generate alternative revenue. So for the first point, you can actually start to use objects outside the game sandbox to market the game itself. Imagine that you drop a weapon for a game in the middle of Hyde Park, and people can go and sort of pick it up Pokemon Go style, and then bring it into the game world and start to act with it and play. Imagine that you can scan, you can scan a billboard and pull an extra life off that billboard and bring that into the game world. So that has um, opportunities to sort of drive engagement with new gamers. The other side is around revenue generation, and if you look at the amount of money that's being spent in in advertising, I think it's about $350 billion a year is spent on advertising, 50% of that is digital, 80% of that 50% goes to two companies, Google and Facebook. Um, if you're able to start to channel some of that revenue into your game, there's opportunities to do things like in-game product placement, in-game advertising, which represent new revenue streams for the independent. So rather than just annoying people with adverts, you can start to actually bring stuff into the game which generates revenue but actually supports the gameplay and supports the experience. So, <clears throat> like a good jazz band, now I'm going to break it down. 
So I want to step back, I think, a little bit um, because the points that have been made are excellent, and they're very. As a gaming company, I feel like I, I completely relate to all of those points, but they're very specific to the opportunities that gamers have utilizing blockchain technology. Um, let me make it a little bit more general. I think the reason that we, as a game company, decided to start embracing blockchain as a way that could enhance game experiences for our users. Very simple. We saw this world of blockchain which was largely fintech driven, and it looked awfully similar to our world of mobile gaming. They're both about 10 years old, they're both about $100 billion globally, and they're both still perceived as niche, although in fact blockchain is still kind of niche, and gaming is about 5 billion people, so it's not that niche actually, um, mobile gaming specifically. But those two overlapping circles, as of 2017, only overlapped around some crypto keys, and that was it, right? So you got these $200 billion circles, and we thought, that makes no sense, right? These circles should have a much bigger overlap because gamers actually understand soft currency. We call it premium currency in a game. Everybody goes into a game and spends, quote unquote, real money for fake money in a game. Right? And they do so willingly and have been doing so for more than a decade in Asia and around 10 years in most other countries. And so it's not going to be a stretch for them to embrace the idea of an alternate currency. So we took that and we thought, how can we use blockchain in games? And let's just think of a very simple premise. Mobile gaming now is about $100 billion and the idea of non-fungible tokens or ownership of content, all this stuff is great. We're big advocates of it. And, but for a very simple reason. Right now, people spend a certain amount in games. Maybe I spend $10 a month playing a game, right? And that's a sunk cost, right? I spend it on content, it disappears. It's a license to content. It's not only really own it. So here's the simple premise. If I could own the content, and there was a chance that I could sell the content later, and not make money, if I just got 10 cents on the dollar, right? I got a dollar back with that $10 I spent. Would I spend $11 in the first place? That's what interests us. Because if we do, then that adds $10 billion to our industry right there. Because that's a 10% increase in top line revenue growth. And mobile gaming is not that sexy anymore. We still grow at 30 or 40% a year. But in mobile gaming terms, that's not attractive. Um, and so I think that's an area that we find very exciting. So we have made bets across the industry, both in-house games we produce ourselves, as well as making investments in everybody who we think does interesting things. Yeah, Robbie, that's some, some really good points you made there at the end with regards to revenue and, and giving, giving users an exit where it used to be very closed. You know, if you buy something in a game, the only thing could do was trade for something else in that game or go back to some virtual tokens in that game because publishers wanted to lock you into their ecosystem. They thought that's the best way of making money. But there's been many examples, particularly with um, kind of like grey market selling of Counter-Strike sourced skins and guns and things like that, where they realized that if you could give these players an exit route to fiat or to just allow them to monetize those assets again, they'd spend way more money in the primary market than they thought by putting these barriers up. So, so um, I've seen that firsthand. I think that's one of the really interesting parts about blockchain, and especially in gaming. The other one which is really interesting is the lack of gray markets and black markets 
on the publisher then, right? So they sell these assets and they don't want you to, to trade them with other people outside their ecosystem. Uh, but you know, people find a way of doing these things and they became very, very uh, profitable businesses. Now, with NFTs on the blockchain, you can program in a resale value or a distribution of a fee back to the publisher, no matter who you sell it to. So all of a sudden, you've removed a huge gray market that they weren't monetizing before, they can now monetize that, they can be a part of it, so they're not concerned about whether you, you know, trade it with somebody else on a different blockchain or for a different game you know, in general. So um, from a revenue standpoint, it makes a ton of sense for the publishers. From a user standpoint, so I kind of think we, we kind of dabble in both sides, you know. Um, from a user standpoint, they get to, so they get, they get to own the item out, right? So they'll probably pay more for it in the beginning. They can also now use it within different games. And like John says, you know, you can, that kind of adds an element of marketing. You know, and I, we're not at the stage yet where um, games are supporting other people's assets yet, like in, which I think is really the next step. Um, and it'll take some time. I'm not sure how um, you know, publishers will feel about incorporating other people's assets. That's a different kind of story. But, um, you know, that's certainly where we're going with it, and I think, um... So, can I just yeah. pick up on that? Because there, there is, um, there's one, you know, fundamental um, question, which is, is, is the business model. Because at the moment, when we sell tennis rackets, for instance, we sell one to everybody that wants to buy one. Um, and so we're making the full, full sale value um, every time. So now, if it was a, if it was a resaleable item, um, we may be able to make a, a mark on every transaction, um, but the full original sale cost is um, in the secondary market is not necessarily coming back to us. Um, so that, for a, a number of publishers, is a, a shift in business model that, that, that they somewhat fear, um, and they fear it in the same way that you know they did six, seven, eight years ago when free to play came about, and they started. You know, when people um, stopped selling games up front on mobile and uh, some of the revenue came in from in-app purchases from a freely distributed distributed app. And some of the, the, the big names and big publishers um, really struggled with that business model initially. And they were really struggling with, you know, how am I going to make my money? And I've just spent $100 million making this game and you want me to give it away for free. Um, and, um, and, and so there is that. Um, change in attitude in terms of how is the business model going to work because it is i'd like to sell a tennis racket for a hundred dollars but i don't just want to sell one i think that's one of the things that um, it was quite interesting as well because a couple of years back we had um, at the london blockchain conference we had jared Segoda of Bitguild, uh, uh, and he brought up a couple of interesting facts and that's when it comes to this creation of a secondary market that's not something that's brand spanking new with blockchain, it's just something that it's allowed to create and become a bit more legit. I mean, you have a secondary market on the likes of eBay or Amazon with the likes of RuneScape and World of Warcraft. All blockchain does is make that a bit more legit and create a, a bit more of a better way for publishers to make some money off that because they're, other than that, they were losing millions of billions of dollars in a project that they should be part of. There's um, one good example that Brett Saylor gave for Forte, which is like an investment accelerator fund for watching games. And he said that a centralized system 
at the moment represents more of a closed planned economy. And blockchain games allow for the creation of a free market. It's just about how to really sort out the minor details that exist at the moment. Yeah, I totally agree with both those points. Um, the other thing that we didn't mention as well, which I just want to add in, was the, uh, the, the provable scarcity as well. So now, you know, you're, the publisher says to you, this is a rare item, there's only four of them, you can't prove that, and they could always make more in the future, right? Um, which I think is a really big deal for, you know, NFTs, I think NFTs will be big, I think SFTs, semi-fungible tokens, where you have like a limited run of one to a hundred items will probably be more prevalent, and you know, people will have set, you know, set more value on the first one than the hundredth one, but um, you know, that's another interesting point. Um, so the next question I wanted to ask was around use cases and genres. Um, so what do you guys think about the first use case in terms of what type of genres are you looking at, uh, whether that be trading card games, first person shooters, or other types of use cases that this technology and in-gaming will really kind of be the first to get adopted? Robbie, do you want Sure, I'll, I'll start. As you can tell from our company name, our focus is on brands. So we're the biggest licensee of third-party brands in mobile gaming. Um, so in terms of blockchain, I think probably the most notable brand we've licensed to make blockchain games is Formula One. Um, and we're taking a bit of a bet on sports because we think brands like Formula One or um, football, where we work with Bayern Munich and the Bundesliga, um, are very interesting because they're very fan-driven. Um, and we think that the low-hanging fruit over the next 12 to 18 months um, for NFTs particularly is going to be on collectability and rarity because the catering to the super fans is going to help us stimulate growth in the industry in general before it's adopted on a mass scale. Because I think we do have certain things to work out. Onboarding is terrible, right? There are 30, 35 million wallets out in the world, which is roughly the same as the number of web browsers in 1996, right? So it's a small economy out there, and there are many hurdles. We've worked very hard in mobile gaming so that when you go into the app store, you're only five clicks away from being able to download and spend something in our games. And blockchain adds you know, 50 more clicks and a copy of your driver's license on top of that. Um, so those things are things we're sorting out right now. But as long as we can make the value proposition available to consumers, they will come. That's one of those things we find and why we think games are actually going to be the medium that um, sort of stimulates the adoption of blockchain technology into a mass consumer audience because like video cassette recorders or digital payments or all these technologies we've seen in the last 30 years, most of them have been driven by consumer entertainment demand. Um, because at the end of the day, they want to watch movies, they want to play games, and that's what stimulates them to try out some new technology. So I think um, in terms of the use cases, the different genres of gaming, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly rusty in my gaming. I think the last game I played probably was probably Goldeneye on the Nintendo 64. Yeah. So that dates me. It's still my favorite. It's still my favorite. Um, but um, we, we have, as a, as a technology platform, we work with various different games developers. Um, we're seeing stuff across multiple genres. We've got guys who are working on sort of big sort of space training type games. Uh, we've got people who are developing first-person shooters, a lot of mobile games. Um, so there isn't really a specific genre. I guess the, the attributes that you're looking for is you're looking for, obviously it's got to be multiplayer, it's got to be networked, it's got to be completely internet aware. 
where you can have objects which actually follow logic outside of the game world. So, you know, for example, using the, the football analogy, if you've got a player for the Bundesliga and in the real world that player ends up unfortunately breaking their leg or another part of their anatomy, you know, if all of the individual digital objects for that player are updated out, you know, on the blockchain, the status is updated, that affects everybody's ability to play the game. Um, also, the ability to have objects to have their own intelligence and logic outside of the game world. So one of the things that, that we do with Block B is, rather than just having a, a dumb NFT that sits there and represents ownership on the blockchain, um, we have the ability for objects to move and react in the real world, so they can actually have their own intelligent, long-running processes completely independent of the game world. So you can start to move some of the logic out of the game into the object, which is, which is pretty exciting stuff. So I think it's across use cases. What we'll, what we'll also see is, when it comes to this whole multiplayer space, one of the areas that we're watching very closely is around augmented reality, but it's around what I call city-scale AR. So once we get to a situation that AR moves off a, you know, rather a crap object on the coffee table into a situation where people can actually follow the same object around the streets, there's technology like uh, 5G and, um, and edge computing which enables that, then I think we're really going to see this go crazy. I think there are certainly some words that we can really throw out there in talking about some of the real use cases that exist at the moment. Uh, one of them would be like viable fundraising, esports, live streaming, augmented reality as well. And I think for a couple of them, I mean, Anamoka Brands represented one of them, which is F1 Delta Time. So that, along with other titles like Battle Racers for, I think, with Altitude Games, what they demonstrate as well is some viable use cases for alternative means of investment or for engaging with your target audience. A couple of others include esports, for example. Some of them that we've noticed has been Gods Unchained. Before, I think Battle Racers pre-sale, they ended up selling one card called Hyperion for almost just a little bit underneath. Is anyone here familiar with Magic the Gathering? Oh, of course, some card games in here, nice. But uh, anyway, they sold um, one of the cards called Black Lotus, and that was the only thing that really outmatched it. So you certainly see there's a lot of viability there in the world of esports. So uh, that along with a couple of ones for augmented reality, there are certainly some really applicable use cases that we can already look to already. It's just a case of waiting to see them mature at the time, I think. Yeah, just um, to, to, to repeat the question in terms of genre, it's, it's, um, it's, it's actually a really interesting um, uh, question because we've been, I come from a mobile background predominantly, um, uh, mobile games background, and we've been, what we've seen in the last five, five six years, it's all been around um, development of the uh, monetization model within it. So that's where really people have been driving value in, in, in the mobile games market, which is why it's so big in, in, in dollar terms. Um, but what um, what this could really do is is drive um, IP, so you, know, you start to attach value to um, intellectual property, whether that be uh, a sports um, entity or a sports uh, Formula One kind of thing, or, or it's unsurprising that we're a sports um, uh, games company, so that's why we were interested in it. Um, or where it's other types of um, uh, intellectual property that you want to bring into a game. But that's where you know, um, uh, non-fungibles come in, where you can start to attach that um, and give that away to, to, to players. So those kind of things make sense as a, as, as a, a genre in terms of whether they're you know, 
casual games or whether they're a little bit more sort of uh, hardcore. I suspect in the first instance they're going to be more hardcore to mid-core games because there is this fundamental um, friction in terms of getting people to do that. And so you know, you've got to, you've got to, um, and those, those people who are going to go and you know, set up their wallet are going to be highly engaged and they are um, mid to hardcore players. Sorry, just to add a bit more into this one, but the whole process of onboarding, as um, as we previously discussed as well, the underlying lesson for some blockchain games is, for God's sake, get the user experience right, get the onboarding done. Because I think I was saying to, I forget who I was talking to this morning, but we were using the the notion of the LinkedIn problem because there was an article that was going around a couple of years ago, which was talking about how long it takes for the average applicant to just go through the process of applying for a job before saying, you know what, this is just an utter waste of time, let's just go back out of it. And I think for every page that you go through of an application or an onboarding process, the more and more players you're going to lose, and that's a filter that this gaming space has to really get over. The plus side is, is we're already seeing some pretty amazing progress from, like Dapper for example, is doing a lot more cross-collaboration between games, along with a couple of others, including Bitsky, which works on quick access to non-fungible tokens as well as safe and secure storage. So it's good that we're already seeing progress in that way. Yeah, I just want to, to, to because that's going to be our next question, so some good conversation already on that. Um, for the genres, I'm glad we're all in the same sort of, in the same boat. I'm very uh, bullish on, you know, like trading, sports trading cards, and I know Robbie, you know, your affiliation with Lucid site and MLB Champions, that was one of the first use cases endorsed by Major League Baseball, and now they, they issue cards, and um, you know, that's really driving two things. Obviously, you know, obviously the younger crowd, they really like to engage with the, the, these assets that they can now own, they can track values, obviously based on fantasy football and things of that nature, but also, as we've also touched on, super, like super fan engagement, being able to understand and, and reach out to, in a non-intrusive way, your top fans and offer them premium content or early access to tickets and things like that. And I'm, I'm aware of it happening in football now as well, so very, very bullish on that sector. I really like it. These are some really good use cases, and I think we're going to see that adoption starting to take place now. And then, as we also mentioned, uh, Gods Unchained by Fuel Games, right? They're kind of tapping into the, the Hearthstone networks, like a $400 million game, and uh, I think that has instant. Kind of blockchain applicability. It's a trading. People to trade those cards if they can own them, and you know, Edco just seems to even better. So I'm very. Those are the two use cases that I really like personally, and I think that brings me on to the next question, which is, how can you now now we've defined okay, there's some great use cases here. It makes a lot of sense both on both sides of the market. How can we bring users in in a frictionless way that that enables them to get involved? In an, easy, in an easy manner that doesn't require lots of blockchain experience. And I know that you guys uh, you know, have all have different experiences in trying to make that happen, so I'd love to get your perspectives on it. So. Yeah, we, we, um, our experience is that we, we um, worked on a project last year, so we built a, a, a prototype of uh, doing this and, and to introduce this in one of our existing games. And, and the existing game has you know, 300,000 daily active users, which um, at the time was you know, significantly more than any of those um, dApps out there which are, which are um, uh, driving the uh, users. Um, but the technology that we were uh, basing them on, which was the you know, standard Ethereum technology, um, 
is limited in terms of its ability to, to, to scale and to bridge those sort of friction barriers. And um, for us, so Paul, you know, we're in um, we're competing in a mobile space where every um, virtually every millisecond, every step that a consumer has to take, um, additionally, um, will uh, result in a lost user as chat. Um, and you're doing that against everybody else uh, with a huge marketplace with masses of content in there. And you're having to be different in that sense and, 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 and have to be, you know, clean and easy to, to use. Um, and there was just no way we could uh, deploy that to our audience at that stage. Um, so there is some major steps to go to be able to deploy it. But the, the, the main thing is, and the main thing I wanted to say, is that I don't think any of them, any of our users care um, what we call it. Yeah. We don't need to use the terms. We don't, they don't care about the technology, they don't care about um, the wallets, they don't care about any of those, um, uh, any of those sort of the, the elements of, of the technology. Um, for them it's all about user experiences. You know, what can they do? What does it do for me? Um, and if we can present that to them as frictionless as possible, then you start to get the scale. It's, it's very much akin to, and it's, it's going to get into boring metaphors as well, but I mean, game developers really have to approach the leveraging of blockchain from the player's perspective, like going for a dinner at the seaside. Now, at the first moment, you're just stepping into really inch high water, so the amount of knowledge you're going to have for blockchain is tenuous at best. You, all you're going to care about at that point is how it helps to enrich the gameplay experience. And as you go more and more into it, you can start to get more and more invested in what blockchain represents. And some of the examples we have of that would be like Loom, for example, or Wax, who have this sort of validation process where you can allow players to become more stakeholder behind the solution. But at early stages, they're not going to care about that. All they're going to think is how long it takes for the game to get set up, how long it takes for me to set up my account, and how I can dive into the experience in the quickest way possible. And I think some of the challenges that we have to that is one, it's going up against a market that is billions and billions of dollars in value and has been working in perfecting the user experience for a long time. So it has to first run against that. But then the other side too is to make for an enriching enough experience to provide a viable use case that people are going to want to immediately circulate. And those seem to be a few of the initial challenges to begin with. So I think in the conversations that we've had with, with games, uh, games companies, there's been sort of two, two consistent objections, and actually that these are blockchain gamer back in January. Um, the first one is that um, is the onboarding process. The fact that if you, uh, I know this is hallowed calls the BIOS, but if I talk about Ethereum for a second, you need to go through and get a MetaMask account, you need to get a wallet set up, all of those things. It's a blocker to user engagement. Um, and you know, as has been said, there's. Um, these guys, you know, people don't want to go through this process to play their favorite game. They don't want to sign up for this stuff, and they shouldn't have to. Um, so what we think is, you know, that that is, um, we need an interface moment for the blockchain. In the same way that the blockchain is a bit like the uh, the internet when it first started, it's all great screens and tells us what we need is a web browser, and that's what we have not been uh, endeavoring to build. So to get to a position where you can start to use digital objects within a game, literally by signing up with a phone number, with a Facebook profile, with an email address, and you can transfer objects just as easily. So if I want to send you a, 
you know, a, a car or a, a sword, I can send it to you to a phone number or an email address rather than having to try and send it via a, you know, an Ethereum or any else wallet. So that, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is um, that we keep hearing about is about cost. So you know, blockchain is expensive compared to running your own closed ecosystem. Um, if you you know, if you look at the cost of signing up and, and, and creating a, a, a wallet on the EOS, you look at the cost of doing transactions on Ethereum, you know, it doesn't make sense for every use case. And you know, one of the things that we've tried to do with Log B as an abstraction there is to say, look, not every digital object that we have on our platform has to be on the blockchain. They can be off-chain or they can be on private chain. And that means you can have one set of APIs as a business, as a developer that you can talk to. You might have you know, a million objects out there which are completely commoditized and have no real value. Don't put those on the blockchain because people aren't going to want to trade them. If you've got a hundred rare objects, put those on the blockchain. So we can get through that whole piece around getting users engaged and making the whole experience frictionless. And if we can get around the cost issue, make it easier for developers to talk to an object, be it blockchain or otherwise, then I think you get them a lot of friction. I think from our perspective, we make teams, and we know how to make teams, um, and hopefully we keep people entertained. And so I think we're very much taking a, if you build it, they will come approach to it, because the onboarding process is cumbersome right now, but we don't feel a compelling need to solve that problem of our own, because we think that there are plenty of bright people in our ecosystem who will solve that as it goes along. And I think that what you find is that if the consumers really do demand that content, then they will find a way. So I think back to 2012 when I bought myself a shiny new Samsung Galaxy 3, and it was a really nice phone, top end. And you know, I was living in Hong Kong at the time, lots of credit cards, very well-developed economy, and I went and tried to make a purchase on the Google Play Store, and they don't accept Visa, right? Because that was 2012 on Android, and you couldn't make a transaction. My bank had to try to confirm it, and you know, like, it was ridiculous. And this was Google, right, in a first world country. Um, but it took a long time to sort that out. That was already four years into mobile, you know, mobile gaming on the two dominant platforms. And then Google didn't really sort their stuff out for what, till 2014 maybe on Android in developing countries, right? If that, um, so this stuff takes time. So I'm not afraid of the onboarding process right now. This is actually exciting because I know it will get solved, but I also know I don't need to be the one to solve it because Dapper and you know you guys, everybody else is working on this problem and it will be solved. But you know, give it 12 to 18 months. There's certainly some you know, on that sort of note, for such a nascent technology, there is so much in the way of progress from talented individuals and companies that are really trying to streamline the approach. So as we previously discussed, you've got Dapper trying to really help to provide a viable alternative for MetaMask, which was the Ethereum state for a while. On the EOS side of things, you've got the Degrid standard, you've got Wax blockchain is trying to link up all these things. So progress is underway, it's just these things take time. Yeah, I think um, when it comes to creating an easier onboarding process, what you need to well, people might need to get away from the thought that it's going to be fully decentralized and you're going to own your own private keys and all of that kind of thing because it's probably not, you know, like if you're, if, if, if you don't have a blockchain account and you don't know anything about blockchain and you sign in with a, you know, through, through Scatter for example, which they're bringing out some really interesting 
features that allows, say, sign with Facebook or your email or your, or your number, then they'll create a custom new wallet for you. Like, you'll be able to access the application, it'll work perfectly, and they'll manage all your private keys on your, on your behalf. And I think the point is that people don't care about, you know, the users don't go, we always say in the, in the office when a, when a game studio comes in, we're interested in great games that use blockchain. We're not interested in great blockchain games. So, like, that, 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 that custodial side is taken care of by the, by the app, and the users don't care. They don't even care what blockchain is on. They just care, like you guys have said, that they can, they can take advantage of those features. And uh, actually, uh, one of our investments, the, the recent one we made, Azurus, is a great example of this. So, Azurus is a, an engagement platform built on the Twitch. Uh, on the Twitch extensions, right? And so what it enables people to do, let's say you're watching uh, an eSport game and the round ends, Azurus will pop up in the top right corner saying, how many headshots did so-and-so get in the, last, in the last round? And gives you like 10 seconds to answer. This is increased engagement on streams by like 10x. Like this, this is really interesting. It's a Ubisoft incubated project. They're launching this on Rainbow Six Siege as a pilot, seeing really, really good results. But the point is that when you get into Azure, the only thing you need to do is sign with Twitch. It's all blockchain-based, but the user only needs to sign with Twitch. The tokens can be on blockchain or not. They are in this case, and they're redeemable in stores uh, for real in-game items, which is driving that user engagement, and brands love that. Um, but the onboarding process is seamless. Well, listen, we have to go for our amazing panel. They're an amazing job. I want to say a big thank you to everyone that came down and made the event as special as it was. It was a phenomenal evening. I know the audio quality doesn't do it much justice, but if you want to change that, come down to the event, be part of this meetups that we do on a monthly basis and uh, join the revolution here in London. So listen, with that in mind, that's a wrap. I've got to bounce. Thank you so much for your time and your attention as always. Hit us up on Twitter at SVK underscore crypto. Follow us and check out our Telegram page, SVK crowd. If you type that in, you'll find us. And if you have any further questions or queries, feel free to email myself, cstory, C-S-T-O-R-R-Y, at svkcrypto.com. That's a wrap, and I've got to bounce. <laughs>